all this, uh, certainly the great growth in internationalism, uh, all over the world, the League of Nations, uh, and again it was the French, and, and a considerable number of uh, societies and groups across Europe were working towards some sort of European federation. Uh, among politicians, the French Foreign Minister Brillon was the first to propose that. Why has the 
exercise the lead. I think the fundamental reason is that it could. Um, the reason is largely circumstantial, we're not joining Euro. And hence, um, it, it made leaving the EU much more uh, imaginable and, and doable. Um, Britain is not the country in which the EU is least popular, but it's the country in which the, the, the EU is the most defensible. Uh, essentially because we're not part of the Euro, and therefore leaving the EU is a far less risky and dangerous process. Um, and um, I think there are, other, there, are other, there are other reasons too, and I think one one would have to say is that compared with the 1960s and early 70s, um, the, the, uh, the pessimism about the future of the country is much less marked, or at least it was before the referendum.
But the, what we see here and in the pages I've just very briefly shown to you is a sense that we are being stopped by migration. There is a narrative that the migrants are here, they are claiming our benefits, they're taking our jobs, they are a burden on public services. They are here and they are crooked and something needs to be done. So what you don't get from this, this very of the front pages is any distinctions between the different groups of migrants who are coming to the UK. Whether we're talking about EU migrants who have more or less an unrestricted right to be here, or migrants coming from third countries, so non-EU states, who have a very, very limited right to be here, or whether you're talking about refugees who are fleeing war in Syria or who are fleeing Afghanistan or Kuwait or Iraq, um, who are in a different legal situation and have a right to claim asylum. But the language of migrants is the label, probably pejorative, which is attached to them all. And if you look at the third um, headline along, we're from Europe, let us in. I'm going to come back to that one in a moment. But can you see um, all of the, so you can see there <coughs> from Miss Queen on, Fury over the plot to let in 1.5 million Turks. The Turkey's not in the EU. Um, the swarm are coming. Um, and you can see Cali is besieged by gangs. Here, look at the biblical language of Exodus. Because of course that's actually about the plight of the Syrian refugees. It's got nothing to do with um, the EU law. They've, no, they've got no entitlement under EU law to come. But note the, the very pejorative language being used against um, EU migrants, coal chancers, the great <coughs> migrant swindle, Brits not fair. And these are all of the front pages of the Daily Express that touch upon migration in the period 2014-2016. So you get a very strong message that we are being overwhelmed by the migrants um, that are coming and they are detrimental both economically and socially to the British economy. And of course, in the run-up to the referendum, the Remain campaign had an uphill battle to combat these um, years of anti-immigrant, anti-EU um, publicity. So let's have a look. Occasionally, there were corrections. There were corrections, actually my colleague on the UK and Save the Europe programme, Jonathan Porter, just fought pretty much a, a one-man battle to try and get some truth um, and trying to get corrections. But of course, although I've blown this correction up large enough for you to read it, in reality, the newspaper is, you know, it's tried to a postage stamp. And this is about um, NHS is at breaking point because of the influx of EU migrants, when in fact, as we know, the NHS is dependent on migrant um, workers to be able to actually provide services for the NHS. And do you remember that story I showed you, we're from Europe, let us in? Well, in fact, as they clarified, again, postage stamp style, um, that in fact, these were not from Europe, they were from Iraq and Kuwait, and indeed as Iraqis and Kuwaitis have no right um, to enter the UK. 
have a look at the capacities in which EU nationals can come in. I said at the beginning EU nationals um, can come in almost unrestricted. Well, that's, that's sort of correct. Um, I'll be a bit more precise now. In fact, EU nationals can only come in in um, four different capacities. First of all, those who are economically active, whether they are workers or dependent labour, or as self-employed, or as providers of services, so they may be here temporarily. And the treaty, the Treaty of Rome, which is the original founding treaty of the EU, allowed individuals to migrate only if they were economically active. And then in the early 1990s, the EU extended the right to move, not just to those who were economically active, but also to students and kids, persons of independent means. And they had the right to come to the UK and internationals in reverse to the EU if they had sufficient medical insurance and sufficient resources. Now note those caveats, those caveats do not apply to these first two groups. And so lots of people have moved to that capacity, and of course the UK University of Lausanne is the mandatory from um, EU uh, students coming here. But then there's a group of folks who don't really quite fit. And those are down and out, homeless, those who don't have sufficient resources. And the impression you've got from all of those um, headlines that we've already seen, that they're here and they've come here to claim benefits, and that's their motivation for well, in fact, although there was a hint for a period of time just after the Maastricht Treaty when all of those who hold the nationality of a member state could have the right to move, in fact, the, the legal position is more nuanced than that. And I'll just show you what that is in a moment. But just to make two other points. These rules that I've just outlined only apply to EU nationals. They do not apply to non so the position of Iraqis and Turks and so forth, they don't benefit from all of that. And crucially, and what also got lost in the selling, was that we are not in Schengen. Now Schengen is the border-free travel area. We are not in Schengen, and so we have always been able to control our borders. So all of this talk about take back control of our borders is fundamentally, legally, inaccurate. <coughs> And what is the, um, the fallacy that makes me most cross all the talk about controlling borders actually misses the point. The reality is all immigration control is largely done not at the border, but actually by employers through visas or through landlords through checking that people are entitled to visas. This is the privatization of control. It's not the traditional idea that people think all immigration control is done at the frontier. Just to elaborate, I said that um, EU nationals have, have rights to free movement, and they do, but it's more nuanced. And basically it's nuanced in different phases, north to three months, basically anyone who's EU national can move, but after three months, they've got to be a worker or a self-employed person, a student or a kid, and they've got to have sufficient resources. And the Danube case makes that very clear. They can't claim benefits. They can't come here demand benefits. And then once they've done five years, yes, they're treated much more like, like they have to. 
and indeed it's this last group that will get settled status um, under the government's proposals. So continuing on this theme, I've tried to give you what is the legal position, which is the truth, I'm not trying to get into abstract notions of truth, but for lawyers we would say this is what, what the law is. Just to briefly look at the facts. So just before I go on to look at the facts about how many people you've moved, if we look at the facts, we what we just see here is an organisation called Salsa, who spends a lot of time fact-checking claims. A really good organisation, and you, if you want to get some truth, that, that's what you should be doing. And what you see here is, in fact, you see a rise in the number of people coming to the UK. That's certainly true. And although we talk about the influx of Eastern Europeans, what you also see is actually in recent years, it's actually come not from Eastern Europe, but from Southern Europe, Italy, Spain, Portugal, which have been settled in Cyprus. And look at this crucial figure, it's got lots in the cellar. So EU migration, over which the UK has little control at the moment, has always been lower than non-EU migration, over which we have control through the visa and although the lines are getting closer, what you see is still that non-EU migration trumps EU migration. So all the talk about getting figures down to 70,000 um, uh, is something we could control at the moment in EU migration, and we don't. So we know migrants <laughs> are here, both in
most important to them is to discourage anyone else either. And to be to focus on that more than anything else, because the integrity of the EU is currently shaken. And you can see why um, the Schengen Agreement, which was referred to earlier, has more or less fallen apart after the big upsurge of immigration from Africa and the Middle East. Um, the EU went through a really serious period of um, economic crisis, which, by the way, played a role in the British vote, which it's now coming out of. Um, there's nationalist forces at work, alternative to Germany. This uh, right-wing party has got 90-odd seats in the Bundestag after the election a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago. The Austrians a day or two ago voted in a right-wing party, so there's a nationalist, right-wing, populist dimension to all of this. So the EU faces some really serious um, concerns, and you can understand why they might focus on that much more than anything else. Um, and the thinking would be something like this. The EU holds all, holds all the cards. Um, if the negotiations collapse, okay, the worst that can happen is that 14% of the EU's total trade may be damaged. Okay? 48% of UK exports go to the EU. So 48% of Britain's trade could be damaged. When you look at it like that, you could argue, well, maybe we should take a hit in order to show everybody the damaging consequences of Brexit. WTO, which is the default position, World Trade Organization Turkey, which is the default position, um, is actually not too, not too onerous. Tariffs are low, barriers to trade are low. And so on the trade side, if Britain ended up uh, with WTO agreements, it wouldn't be that
they might be stonewalling and unruly to the Europeans. So, what's the solution of this all? Well, I'm actually, it doesn't sound like it, but I'm fairly optimistic about what's coming, what the ocean version is. Um, and we see a deal is possible fairly easily right now. We could have a Norwegian style arrangement, giving access to the single market, giving access to customs union, pay some money for it, maybe on a continuing basis, but not exclusive money. Um, and that certainly could be negotiated, providing you could cover this issue of who controls immigration, a big issue in the referendum, and it's still a big issue out there among people, despite the distortions that I've They want to deal 
So if you think that the, if you agree with the Varoufakis argument that the Brussels bureaucrats are the stumbling block, are the barrier to an agreement, Macron and Merkel can override them and we can do a deal with them. Will they do that? I would guess probably yes, but it won't happen for the last minute.
How, what role can the media play in either favoring or hindering the success of right-wing populist parties? From a theoretical point of view, on the one hand, the media can generate demand for right-wing populist parties, for instance, by politicizing certain issues such as racism that may otherwise not become controversial, but it can also sort of um, exacerbate political dissatisfaction and cultural cleavages. On the other hand, the media can also provide a platform to right-wing populist parties, thereby legitimizing their cause. Media access is very important for any party, but especially for new parties on the scene, because it allows parties to sort of spread their message with, uh, at no political cost. And in this sense, the media sort of controls the gateway into the electoral market. There are two relatively recent trends that we can observe um, that appear to be favorable radical right, one being privatization and the other one commercialization. In the past, mainstream media in Europe was often sponsored by churches and political parties, and, and since, but since the late 1960s, the progressive, progressive privatization of the media uh, has created a struggle for readers and viewers, and consequently, uh, a focus on the more extreme and scandalous aspects of politics. It appears that populist leaders seem to benefit from the growing commercial character of the tabloid press industry um, and the popular news media. And at least because these media, they tend to give very passionate attention to what happens in the seemingly very animated domain of populist movements. Now, that was the theoretical bit. I, I hope you're still with me. Now, I'll now try to illustrate this with some examples from my research. So we're going to leave Britain for a moment and move over to the Benelux region. Um, so I've spent the past few years conducting field work in these three countries. Um, to, uh, so I went into newsrooms and I interviewed editors-in-chiefs and journalists at newspapers, radio, and television stations to get a sense of how these, these media practitioners deal with right-wing populism. And this was really fascinating, not just because, um, not in the least because they, were, they had very different responses to this question, but they had very different ways of dealing with right-wing populism. And in the remaining four minutes or so, I will give you a snapshot, a very, very quick snapshot of all of these four case studies. I'm going to try to cram two years of my PhD into four minutes. <laughs> Bear with me. I'll start with Luxembourg. Um, Luxembourg has a very interesting media landscape. It has just over half a million inhabitants. But could you guess how many newspapers there are in Luxembourg? Any guesses? One would be the sort of more uh, usual answer because it's a very small country, right? So there's only half a million uh, people who um, live there, but actually there are six daily newspapers. So this is quite a lot for such a small country. And this surprising high number of media outlets can partly be explained by the fact that the government has issued a generous public funding scheme to protect media, media pluralism. So the market, uh, 500,000 people, is only big enough really for one newspaper to be, from a commercial point of view, to be, to be um, used. So, uh, and because of this, most media outlets have the luxury not to really have to cave into consumer demand. And in comparison to other countries, Luxembourg has a very moderate media landscape. Um, and issues like immigration are not very politicized. None of the newspapers are even remotely critical about immigration. So this, in fact, tends to sort of um, echo the more moderate views of the ruling elite. And I should say that it's important to note that these views that the media portray are not necessarily 
and the balloon one, the French speaking one, and there's very little overlap between the two. So if you live in one part, you might not read in English in the other part, just because you don't know the language, even though it's one country. So Bologna, the French speaking part, there is a very, um, what's called a very strict cordon sanitaire médiatique. A cordon sanitaire, you can see in this picture, is a garlic line that is put into space to, put, to, to sort of prevent the spread of an infectious disease. In this case, it is a measure designed to prevent, uh, to, to prevent the spread of right-wing extremism. So it is a semi-formal agreement of three media outlets not to ever give voice to the far right. This means that newspapers will never feature interviews with far right politicians, and television stations um, will never <coughs> feature these far right politicians in live uh, live streams. Now it doesn't mean um, that they try to ignore them, but they just try to isolate them. So it's not that they don't quote them or that they don't talk about them. They just try to really isolate them, um, and they never feature them directly. Always sort of placed in a certain context. And the journalists I talk to take this very seriously. They really seem to uh, see themselves as sort of watchdogs of democracy. And one of them put it: "As watchdogs, we must be ready to bark, and if, ne if necessary, to bite." So in Bologna, any right-wing populist movement is sort of strangled at birth. As soon as it pops up, the media is totally silent. It's a very different story in, this, in those cases where there are right-wing populist parties. So in Flanders and in the Netherlands, media practitioners have very different views. They saw themselves not so much as educators, but they saw themselves um, as th their job was to provide a forum for debate. Uh, and journalists I talked to explained that it's important, it's just important to present all the different views out there, not, uh, and that it's not to them to decide what's right or wrong, but for the reader and for the viewer. There were also, there's also, what I noticed, a really big drive among them to give more voice of the silent majority. Uh, so they all tried to sort of feature the ordinary people, the views of the ordinary people. To sum up, in Luxembourg and Bologna, there's very little room for rights and populist parties to influence public discourse. Of course, I have to say that in these two cases, there, there is not, in these two cases, they have yet to witness the rise of a charismatic leader of the likes of Marie Le Pen or Claire Gilbert. But in the absence of a credible right and populist contender, the media have managed to maintain their gatekeeping function. In Flanders and the Netherlands, on the other hand, the media seems to have gradually become more receptive to right and populist tendencies. Now, what does all this have to do with Brexit? <coughs> I think that actually, in the Brexit debate, played a very important role in setting the tone of the public debate, especially leading up to the referendum. Now, I'm not saying that the media caused Brexit, but I do think that Brexit cannot fully be understood without taking into consideration the role of the media, and particular, in particular, the tabloid press industry. In the run-up to the referendum, the media had a very narrow issue agenda. They're focusing primarily on, one, the drama around the campaign, two, economic implications around moving the EU, and three, the risks related to immigration and border control. National press coverage was highly polarized with pro-in newspapers emphasizing the Remain argument and pro-out newspapers emphasizing Leave equivalent. Relatedly, there was a huge trend to feature the views of ordinary British people, whatever, whoever that is, and these voices managed to gain more prominence than expert opinion. <coughs> now you might argue that tabloids simply mirror the concerns of the, and the views of their readers, but we might also say that tabloids play a role in shaping opinion, the media in general does this, thereby stoking populism 
Thank you very much uh, to our panelists. I can tell that uh, the audience greatly enjoyed that, I think. Um, we now have about half an hour for questions and answers, and uh, there are people in blue t-shirts coming around um, to, I think, hand a microphone to anyone in the audience who wants to ask a question. Is that right? You want this one? Okay. And I can't took one up, I think. And I took yeah. one up here, yeah. So, who's going to start us off? Are there any questions? <coughs> yeah. right. It seems to me that uh, uh, Theresa May's weakness <laughs> is her divided party. Uh, you uh, specialised in mentioned in key role of Boris Brexit as one story in precipitating the the fine divide for this London case. Do you think he is crucial to what to swaying the division and divisions in his party, and will he leave it to the last minute he did? for the day of Sunday Telegraph article before he decided whether he was going to go for or against. Um, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Um, let me just answer, before getting to the direct point, about one of the events that occurred in the campaign which was not widely uh, understood, was not widely observed. The Remain campaign had one fairly cohesive campaign. The Leave campaign had two campaigns. They were divided. Effectively, there was a Farage campaign, a UKIP campaign, and there was a Boris Johnson campaign. At the time, we thought, hmm, this really weakens the Leave campaign. They're going to fall out, and it means that they won't do so well. Turned out to be a big advantage. Why? Because Farage could speak to working class, especially in the north, voters who are traditionally um, hostile to the conservatives, but conservative in, in terms of values, but not conservative in terms of economy. And the UK campaign spoke to them. Boris Johnson could speak to conservatives who thought that UKIP were, um, didn't like them. <laughs> they didn't like Farage, and they didn't want to go with that. So those two campaigns <coughs> together worked quite well for 
the leader. Now, on, on, on Theresa May, one of the things that makes me um, optimistic, as I was saying earlier, about Angela Merkel particularly, less so Macron, but Angela Merkel, is that Germans are really worried that Boris Johnson gets the premiership. <laughs> I think the tone in the last couple of days from uh, Brussels has changed. It's much uh, less stonewalling and a bit more being nice to Britain because they're worried they'll push her out and they'll end up with Boris and remember the big cards. They might not get anything from Britain. And a number of people on the Brexit side, remember, said, why should we pay anything? You know, you've heard that phrase. Well, it's actually something we should pay, but that's what they're worried. It leaves a big hole in the budget, and it could happen abruptly if there's no transition agreement. So I think, in a funny way, a weakness is also a strength uh, from the point of view of Germany in particular, but also I think Macron too. That's a question to the whole panel, actually, to Joe Stadtpatron. Do you want to start it off? Or not? The answer is that um, the, the cabinet is divided over this very issue. As we've already heard, those who voted leave um, probably fell into three camps. There were the globalists, the free traders, the liberal free traders, led by Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove. There were, secondly, there were the social conservatives who didn't like David Cameron's reforms on gay marriage. And then a third group, which were those who had suffered significantly under the austerity measures. And what was the genius of the Leave campaign was that um, it didn't say on the ballot paper what sort of version of Leave would be required and there was no obligation to come up with a manifesto. And so the view of what our future arrangements might look like are extremely unclear because it's impossible to square the circle. And there will be people who <coughs> feel on the leave side who will feel hugely uh, let down by whatever deal um, has been delivered, which is why there's been very little talk about what the deal might look like. Now, there is also a very practical legal point 
which is that the negotiations are being done in phases. And this point is actually crucial um, and overlooked, but it's actually what's going on, explain what's, explains what's going on at the moment. The EU required the negotiations to be done in three phases. Phase one is the divorce, phase two is the transition, <coughs> and phase three is the future deal. <coughs> and only when sufficient progress is done on phase one will they move on to phase two, which is transition, let alone phase three, which is the future deal. The European Council decided today that sufficient progress has not been made on phase one, and phase one requires resolution of the issues on citizens' rights, on um, Northern Ireland's border, <coughs> and on the money. For the UK, this is deeply frustrating because the UK says, and there's some merit in their argument, that we can't sort out the Northern Ireland border until we know what the future deal looks like. And, and that's a phase three issue, and we're not there that yet, and earliest we can even start talking about phase two issues, that's transition, will be December, assuming sufficient progress has been made by December. In reality, what's going to happen is that I agree that there will be a deal on the divorce because it's in both sides' interest. It may be left to the very last moment. But in fact, what will take up all the time for the next year or so is negotiating what transition looks like. And now transition doesn't sound very exciting, but transition will largely be a cut and paste of what we've got at the moment without participating in the institutions. The uh, transition will last for two years, says Theresa May. That will not be long enough to deliver a transition. And we still haven't started talking about the future deal because nobody can agree what the future relationship looks like. And at the moment, the reason why there is no big vision stuff in the way that you find deeply frustrating is because it's government by little steps because that's the only thing that Theresa May can get agreed at the moment, which is why there is no talk. And those very timid position papers that have been published give us almost no clue as to what the future will look like. Um, I don't think the differences are as great as you say. I don't think that there is a strong, and indeed hasn't been for a very long time, a strong lobby in Britain for um, a protectionist policy, not since Tony Benn, really, uh, although there's some, there may be some among the Corbynites. Uh, but on the whole, I don't think most people, um, either in government or in, uh, in the media or indeed in the country as a whole, think in terms of a high level of protectionism. Uh, we've, we've been a pretty, pretty well a free trading nation now since the 1840s. And I think most people realize that we have to do that because we import so much of our, so many of our necessities. Um, there, of course, there are differences in opinion, but that's proper to, for a democracy to decide in due course. Um, there's, no, there's no way in which any parliament or any politicians can decide forever what sort of a system we shall have. It's inevitably to be left up to, um, to future debate and, and democratic choice. When people were asked why they voted the way they did, most people who voted Remain said they did so because of the fear of economic consequences, which of course had been, uh, had been greatly uh, inflamed by government propaganda. Uh, and uh, most people <coughs> on the Leave side said they'd voted because they thought that decisions affecting Britain should be taken in Britain. Perfectly simple choice. Uh, I think one has to accept that, um, as, as Ian uh, said, that um, there's a long history of 
suspicion of, e of the EU in Britain. Whether you think that's right or wrong, it certainly existed. Uh, and such a low vote in favour of leave was, I think, largely due, despite what people have said about the influence of the tabloid press, to the far greater influence of the whole political establishment drawing an extremely alarmist picture of the consequences of <coughs> leaving. Do you want to come in on this? Or we have some more calls for you, or shall I take sure. the questions? Um, yeah. Um, populism's occurring across the world. Look at the Trump election. And it's driven by the failure of globalization to deliver for many people. Globalization has delivered for people like, well, people like me, professionals, you know, skilled and all that. Um, it's not delivered for people in localities with lack of skills, um, with very low education. And in one way, these left behind people are voting Brexit, they've voted Brexit. They're voting for Donald Trump in the United States, in states that were previously very democratic, places like Michigan, you know. Um, and populism is occurring across Europe in the same way. One of the effects of globalization has been to create much prosperity, trade. It's very positive in many respects but lots of people have been left behind and inequality overall has risen. That's the drivers behind it across, across the world. And that's where your different visions come from. And we need to be able to tackle those things. We need to be able to deal with inequality. We need to be able to take this on because um, those are the underlying factors. <coughs> the media play a role in this in transmissions and so on. And by the way, the social media play a huge role because it's quite clear that social media, the, the problem with social media is bubbles. People talking to people who agree with them, but not to anybody else. So you get these tribe bubbles that don't look across for other views. And that's um, a key problem as well. So there's a lot behind this, but I think fundamentally that's the underlying story.
don't say what would convince them to vote the other way. Does the panel think that having a Cornell Cemetery enforced by social pressure, by career pressure, and so on, is actually extremely harming uh, the you know our politics? Is a Cornell Cemetery likely to lead to more populism? I'll finish now. Okay. No questions. I think that'll be a question for you, Liam. Yes, thank you. That's a really good point, actually. Social media is one thing we haven't talked about quite a lot. And the thing with social media is that thanks to social media, everyone can be their own editor now. And it means that we can bypass the traditional media by putting thoughts out there that go unfiltered. Um, your point about shaming leavers, I think, is a very valid one and a very good one because that gets us nowhere. And I think that's just as bad as uh, remainers. So I think that's... It's the filter bubbles exist on both sides, and the fact that there is no debate between the two sides, that is... Asymmetric. Right, and oh, the f you said that it was asymmetric. I don't know, I, I don't think we can measure this. And I do know that we have measured um, the media outlets on this, and there it actually turned out that there wa it was asymmetric in terms of that there was 80%, if we weighted it by, by circulation, meaning if we counted the newspapers in terms of how many are actually being read, there was 80% of the uh, newspapers that were um, for for leave, so that was a very that was very disbalanced, um, unbalanced. Um, the problem with shaming, as you say, is um, that we then generate taboos, and with the cordon sanitaire, is that we generate taboos, and then we don't talk about it, and that is a problem, I think. So I don't think that that's the solution to it. Um, but it's also true that we cannot have a debate if we don't have the facts right. And this was the biggest issue, I think, in the, uh, in the campaign leading up to the referendum, that we didn't have the facts on the table, so any way towards the debate was impossible. Could I say just a word? I mean, I, forgive me for saying this, but I, I think it's rather naive to think that there are simply facts that decide arguments, or that we've ever lived in, in a society based on truth. I mean, we live in a society based on opinions, uh, I'm not saying there is no such thing as truth, but it's extremely difficult to get at it. And most people have a very clear idea of what they think is true. But the idea that somehow, if one could only be given the facts, we would all think the same way, seems to me to be, to be an illusion.
excellent question. Who would like to respond? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't mind. I don't yeah. um, I'm all in favour of reform, but I don't think we'd agree about what a progressive reform was. Mm. I mean, I think there, it's certainly true that uh, referendums are likely to uh, generate dissent in when they are being asked to decide very contentious issues. The Swiss have them all the time, and it doesn't seem to make S Switzerland a highly divided society. I mean, there are it seems to me there are certain issues that have to be decided by referenda, however imperfect the system is found to be, and that's those which are essentially about the rules of the, of, of the state, the rules that the state belongs to. We haven't got a, a, a single written constitution. Um, give, given the dissension that is now gripping the country, heaven help us if we tried to, to draw up a constitution. Um, I don't actually think that constitutions of that kind are a great solution. I think the French have had 32. And I don't know that France is particularly better governed than we are. We have to take the risk of, of flexibility, and I think we have to accept the fact that we disagree about things. Since we're coming close to the end, I'm going to collect a few questions, actually, before I let the panel have a speak. I want to point across about globalization. I am a foreigner. And my country, Malaysia, was one of the top investors in the UK from after the last crisis to the year before Brexit. Um, we have one of these countries which has far too high uh, savings rate. So we have a lot of money. And if you save it in our own country, it gets exorbitant expensive. And uh, we were also colonies. So it made it very easy for local pension funds to say, we will invest in London. And then we could say, fine, you know, we are investing your pension money, your future in the UK. Yeah, the UK is fine. Cathedral, everything, the South Park, it was fine. But as soon as Brexit came up, they couldn't do that anymore. I mean, I have to explain this from our outside to our country. We cannot gamble our pension money on your decision, whatever that decision was. So the decision was taken.
I think uh, I'll take another question for the panel. question. Shall we um, give each yeah. panellist some It time? depends what you mean by leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, it'll change. The relationship will change. And it could be that in terms of economics and culture and so on, we're pretty close as we've always been. But we won't be involved in the decision making. But get this. We don't want to be in Britain part of the fast track United States of Europe group. And in our book, we looked across the whole of Europe, public <laughs> opinion on, uh, in all of the countries, about whether Europe should integrate more or less or stay about the same, you know, whether the grand vision of a United States of Europe should be pursued. And over a period of 10 years, Europeans collectively, with one or two exceptions, have moved away from that. They actually don't like the idea of a United States of Europe if it means a huge concentration of power in Brussels. And it reflects this uh, national identity thing. If you feel lack of control and your identity is being somehow lost in a great big global morass, it's going to make some people very concerned. The most effective slogan, by the way, in the um, Brexit referendum was take back control even if it didn't mean very much. That was very powerful, and it's driving national identity, it's driving the Catalans, drove the Scots, so on, um, as a counterweight to globalization. So the answer to your question is we might, we will leave, but it might not mean very much. <laughs> I, I would just add to that, the entire civil service has been turned deliver Brexit. Brexit is going to happen um, and the politics are such that by Theresa May needs to be able to say on the 29th of March 2019 we have left. However, as I indicated earlier, we will be going into a phase of transition which actually will be rather similar to where we're at at the moment, 16 years. And then, of course, who would have thought even 18 months ago we would be having the discussions we're having now and then we're looking three years, three years down the line as to what what the politics might be, it's very difficult, it's a mug's game to <coughs> be predicting the future. But it may be longer term that we discover that actually we were never <coughs> a committed full member to start with, and we might in five or ten years' time not be as committed leavers as uh, some of the hardest leavers uh, might hope. Um, one of Catherine's colleagues in uh, one of the London universities, I forget which, uh, wrote a few weeks ago, I thought it was rather amusing. He said, we're doing something that's never been done before in history. That's to say we're trying to negotiate a free trade treaty between two people who already have free trade. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe not a lot will change economically. Um, could I just say a few words of consolation to our Malaysian friend? By the way, I hope you didn't sell all your equities after Brexit because the stock market went up an awful lot, as you probably know. Um, small countries are doing rather well in the global economy um, and um, 
membership of the EU, it seems, has made, well, the EU's not, not actually very successful economically as, as an institution. And membership of the EU has made absolutely no, um, has had absolutely no effect on our economic performance. It's been um, a constant ratio of that of the United States ever since 1945, for and during our EU membership. There's, there's no reason to think it will be greatly changed by our leaving the EU. Uh, thank you for these very challenging questions. But the reason why this is so frustrating is that there is so much uncertainty and political scientists are notoriously very bad at predicting the future, as we saw with Brexit. So we, we don't really know what will happen in the future. Will we leave? Yes, but the question is when and how? And I think that um, up until then, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue being very frustrating to, to figure out what this when and how might look like. Um, we, we might, as, as uh, Paul is saying, we might not kick, kick all these people out, but these people might leave. So um, this is also a factor that, and even though stock markets might, have, um, might not have crashed yet, um, we, we still, there's all this uncertainty right now. And this is actually what's very costly. The fact that we just don't know what the future might look like. And young people like me who study here might not stay just because we don't know how the future might look like. And it's this uncertainty, I think, that's the biggest problem. Yes, okay, I will take one final question here, I think, and then we're going to have to. Well, the trouble is the game's too complicated. It's in Labour's interests to get a new general election as quickly as possible because they think they could win it and there's a good chance they could. Um, so they don't want to cooperate if the major goal is to oust the government and replace it. That's, but there's also the issue that Labour is pro-Remain in a way that the Conservatives are not. There are divisions in Labour, that's true, especially this working class thing I've talked about. But the Leavers, you know, if you look at the actual vote, um, I think two-thirds of um, the Labour vote voters voted Remain. That certainly wasn't true for Conservatives. So that's another barrier to cross-party cooperation because if you expand the numbers involved and the parties involved, the deadlock, which we, we currently see in the House of Commons, will get bigger. Um, and that's why I'm not sure that it will, uh, that's possible. Well, in that case, um, it is 7.30 by the clock on the wall. Um, so I'm going to ask you all to help me, uh, join me in thanking our panelists for a very <laughs>